Sequence is loading. Excuse me. Uh, sorry to interrupt. I have an urgent announcement to make regarding national security. What? I don't think our country is being run very well. Are you ready? 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 Relax. Enjoy. Move it. Denny Craig. Move it. All right, everybody. Welcome. Move it. Give me a call sometime. You know how to use a business card, don't you? You just whip it out of your pocket and blow. From Forest Rain Studios, it's the home of Boston-Legal.org, and you're connected to Boston Illegal. It's a story of partners, coat rooms, influence, and finally becoming harmonic. It's Monday, it's January 16th, it's, and it's almost a full week after Boston Legal Tuesdays. I'm Dana Greenlee, and you're listening to Boston Illegal. It's the unofficial, that means we do whatever we want, uh, weekly podcast experience of Boston Legal. It's the David E. Kelly-produced television show, broadcast right here in the United States on ABC, along with the help of 20th Century Fox. And, of course, all the good people over at David E. Kelly Productions, which uh, they go by Ustinka. That's the name of their company, but I don't know what that means. So if anybody knows why he named it that... You know, I'm sure it's not a trade secret. Tell me. I'm curious. Uh, today's Boston Legal Radio is essentially a conversation about the 11th episode of season two, the first one of 2006, called The Cancer Man Can. And with me right now is Rob. Hey, it's not Kyle. I know. I'm back. I can't believe I'm back <laughs> on the on the Boston Legal Podcast again. It's very cool. You know, cool. it's great. You know, Kyle who's like as far as you can get from me as far as being in the continental United States, completely on the other side, couldn't reach him. But and, I, but you're at hand. But I'm like as close as you could be. Right? <laughs> I grabbed you. I uh, said, yeah. get the I'm heck. I'm always handy. In your hand. I think hands is going to come up a lot during this episode. Yep. What do you think? See how many times we can say hands. Hands. You, you're at hand. Hands. I'm, I'm here giving a hand. <laughs> Remember, you can always stream and download this podcast at boston-legal.org podcast.yahoo.com, odio.com, iTunes. You can also search Google for Boston Legal Podcast. And now you can listen to this podcast on your mobile phone. Go to MobileCast at mobilecast.com. Get the free software and listen to your favorite podcast on your mobile phone. We are their favorite. Yes, we are. (laughs) And also, uh, remember, you can call us and leave a message. You can basically do that anytime. Um, Just... Call 1-800-986-8290. That's a toll-free number in We're not going to answer your phone. We're not going to return your calls. But will you just record what you want to have said on the show? We might just do that. That's right. It's, a, it's your time to give us your comments on what you think about what we talk about and what's going on with Boston Legal. Or you can send us an email at bostonillegal at gmail.com, and that'll zip right over to Dana's inbox. Yes, indeed. And we'll uh, run a little rundown because we're all about the order here at Boston Legal. We're kind of like Jerry Hands. You know, everything has to be precise and in order. This is what we're going to do. We're going to deconstruct the Cancer Man can. We'll revisit our parallel universe. That's something we like to call Trek in the courtroom, looking for those parallels between Star Trek and Boston Legal. And then we'll take a left turn into the Boston Legal News of the Week. And you know what? It's more than of the week because I think our last podcast was, well... 
mid-December? Ages ago. Yeah, legal deficits. What? Last year. <laughs> it was a whole holiday thing got in the way. But you know what? We're probably not going to cover all the news that happened over the holidays because, you know, there was a lot. You just have to need to go to boston-legal.org, check out the news on the page, and the incredibly long archived news page that everything goes, every little bit of trivia goes to after it leaves the front page. That's certainly true. If you want to catch up on what's going on with Boston Legal, it's a great place to go. Dana keeps it up to date, what, daily? Daily? Many, many hours a day, I think. Sometimes it's my job that I don't get paid for, ABC. (laughs) Something we uh, started the last episode we did, which which I decided was a good idea, was dedicate the show to someone, anyone. And it actually was Kyle's turn to choose someone, but, you know, he's MIA. So I am choosing someone to dedicate this to. It's not that I'm just pandering to cast and crew. Last week, last episode was um, a couple of the uh, the crew people, the wardrobe lady, Shelly, and Myron, the uh, the gaffer. But <laughs> this one truly and really did touch my heart, and I'm dedicating this show to Christian Clemenson's smile. <laughs> Christian was is Jerry Espenson. He's the uh, the guest star in this episode. But you know what? Oh, Rob's looking to be like, oh, no, she's fallen in love with someone else. <laughs> oh, no. It's no, not just Brad. It's no. just the, um, yeah, it's just that it was such a sincere and sweet smile. It was, every time he did, he came into Ellen's office to kind of broach the partnership situation. Big grin. Talking to Brad in the hallways, working out chances. Big grin. I mean, even, I don't know. It's just, it was sweet. And so I, my friend Michelle dug up this little bit of research, an article from 1990 with Christian Clemenson. In GQ magazine. Well, actually, it was an article about Spader. But if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that Christian has uh, was a childhood basically um, friends with Spader forever. And they went to Andover Academy together. And uh, so they, they remained close. Obviously, he's got this job. And the article from uh, GQ magazine uh, quotes, this is from Christian himself. At the end of 11th grade, Spader resolved to drop out and move to New York. He's not like some big star at Andover, his ex-classmate Christian Clemenson said, who played Spader's brother in Bad Influence in that same year, 1990. Quotes, uh, he was obsessed with being a professional actor. He says, I was scared for him, he admits. One day I arrived at college and my roommates described this wild person from New York with long hair and fringe leather jacket who sat in the bathtub waiting for me, drinking a six pack. And of course, I knew it was Spader. So thank you, Christian, for smiling a lot in this episode. You know, I just kind of want to put my arms around and be his buddy. <laughs> That's what yeah. it is. All right. Without further ado, let's talk about The Cancer Man Can. What do you think of that title, Rob? I think it uh, really says that the people that have cancer, you know, it happens to be a, there's two men in this story. They they do what they can. Oh, that's a nice to, way to look uh, at it. To actually uh, solve their cancerous problem. And since he can, in this case, Daniel Post, which we'll get into, mm-hmm. he did. Yet all I can do is hear the Rat Pack guy singing it. Do you know who I'm talking about when I say the Rat Pack guy singing a song? No, I think you need to fill us in, though. Oh. Because you're the only one that's on tap with all the trivia. Not the only one. I know all you guys are listening and and going like, who can take the sunrise? (laughs) It would be Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Candyman Can. Uh. And, you know, I think there's always a – they always love to – to link, there's a lot of linked up pop culture vernaculars well, in this then episode. You're going to share it all with us because mm-hmm. you know, you know five, it's coming. Five pages of notes in front of me. So um, the, the we're going to take this storyline by storyline. First of all, we will go ahead and just talk about uh, Daniel Post and, and his situation with lung cancer and, and take, being involved in the double blind study for a cure for cancer. Then we'll merge into the story with my dear Jerry Hans Espenson, who's looking to make partner. And we will take up the third storyline, which is what I like to call 
Denny Crane finding his bliss. He meets Bev. And then, uh, of course, we'll end up with the balcony scene. The episode was directed by Lou Antonio, and it was written by Janet Leahy and Michael Reese. And I think this wonderful wasn't a David E. Kelly written script. And yet there was there were words in this script that I think could win Spader the Emmy. And we'll get to that when we play that that particular soundbite. I agree. Really amazing script. I loved it. I love the editing in this. And oh, may I say it was edited by Philip Neal again. Phil Neal, this last week, has been uh, nominated again for an Ace Eddie Award. That's the Editor's Awards. He won last year in that category for Hired Guns on Boston Legal, which was in season one. And there are similarities in this episode in Hired Guns with the intercut between a very intense scene, uh, the party going on, uh, I won't give it all away right now, and Jerry going through his little meltdown, wigging out. Congratulations to you, Phil. So just to set up the Daniel Post story, um, Paul and Denise are talking in Paul's office. Yes, again, we will mention Paul does finally have an office, Rob. And, <laughs> and they're talking about the case that's coming up. Well, he almost has a case, right, on this one. Well, yeah. It's, it's kind of unusual that he actually has a case. Oh, the fact that he is – that's right. Is this yeah. his first case? Well, and it sort wasn't of. really his – entirely his case because he was handed it off to Denise. He was, and why was that? Uh, I'm not quite sure. Ah, well, this soundbite will explain a little bit more. And it'll also introduce Michael J. Fox back to episodic television as Daniel Post. Daniel Post, CEO, Chrysler Pelham Incorporated. He has stage four metastasized lung cancer. Never fun. <clears throat> a major pharmaceutical company was testing a new cancer drug, and Post used his friendship with the CEO of that company to get himself put into the test group. And to make sure that he got the actual drug, not the placebo. The rich are different from you and me. (laughs) Certainly from you. So, Post is being sued by another cancer patient who was in the same study and who ended up getting the placebo. What's the cause of action? What you'd expect. Conspiracy, intentional infliction of emotional distress. We're going to court today. Today? I thought I could handle it myself, but... uh... Uh, Olivia died of cancer, didn't she? Yes. At any rate, I'm hoping you can second chair. You ready? Uh, Denise Bauer, attorney, Daniel Post. Guy dying of cancer? Is that the way you describe me? Rich guy dying of cancer. Uh, Denise will be second chairing. I just filled her in on the case. Actually, you left out our defense. Do we have one? I like her. I'm not sure if the jury is going to like me, Mr. Post. I have a client who tried to buy his way into a cancer study. Could you tell me what possessed you to do that? I got cancer. Are you really my lawyer? Or did the Make-A-Wish Foundation just finally come through? Well, let me make one thing clear. Paul is out of Denise's league. That's all I have to say here. <laughs> he made that clear, too. Well, yeah. It's like somehow he's better than she is. Well, that that just ain't the case. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe if he's talking, they're talking about rich. They're talking well, about riches and wealth. Well, if he's talking about being a partner, I guess. That's the only difference between them because, because she's she's a knockout compared to him. Well, you know, that's a man speaking. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if we just look at the physical attributes, which is actually an underlying theme in this show, right? About being an attorney, she's pretty good at it, too. Yeah, she is. She's got the smarts. Well, and the other thing um, that 
it was a little hypocritical of Paul. I mean, you know, calling Denise, well, you know, at least in your league, you know, he lost his wife. And so he's basically recusing himself from having to like really have the get in elbows deep in the, in the case. But that's a little hypocritical because remember a few episodes back when Shirley had to interrogate, she didn't want to cross examine the woman with Alzheimer's because her father was actually afflicted with it. And that was like too much for her, but you know, you got to bite the bullet and do it. Shirley. Hello, yeah, Paul. That's right. <laughs> Another thing is, it, Michael J. Fox walked in there. Is he still like the cutest little family ties boy you've ever seen? He's 44. He's so adorable. He's still looking his age, though. No, no. You have to admit. Really not. Oh, I think he does. No. No, he's got the boyish little... Okay. I mean, he's always looked younger than he is, but, but I think you're starting to see his age a little bit now. Oh. I don't know. Well, because he's always been so, you know, kind of, you know, of stature, maybe a little on the shorter side. Yeah, this from the six foot eight guy. Well, yeah. um, who says about size mattering, right? They did edit out the scene. It's what you do with it. Edit out the scene in the preview where a Post walks in and actually makes a quip about a dis- Cranepool and Schmidt validate parking. He waves his little you know parking sticker. Again, you see this in the preview. You don't see it in the show. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty common, I guess. We only have a couple sound bites for this particular storyline, but uh, in the court case. Robert Hopper is the character's name for the guy that's um, suing Daniel Post. He's played by Larry Cedar. But back October, mid-October is when we saw the casting call go out for that part. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because they did shoot it in October. And You saw the casting call because you're keeping an eye on a certain website that puts those things up? I'm not giving out my secrets, but yes. I mean, you know, well, no, I, mean, I just did a Google well, I'm search. I'm not saying give the, give the I, URL or I anything. did a Google search on that one. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Now I've never bookmarked a few. But um, there's a little peek into Dana's little sources. <laughs> anyway, uh, Larry Cedar is a, a fine actor, a regular on Deadwood. He was in Star Trek, of course, Enterprise in 2002. He's been in Boston Public, which is a David E. Kelly series. They were for that. And he was in Murphy Brown in 1997. Who, Rob, is from Murphy Brown? Uh, Candace Bergen, yeah. of course. And Star Trek Voyager in 96. And Star Trek Deep Space Nine, yeah. 1994. <laughs> oh, and speaking of another David E. Kelly, he was in Doogie Howser and L.A. Law. Well, I mean, the man's been around. Does anybody else really have a chance going into that part when, when Larry Cedar walks into the casting office? Well, and, and, and Paul used to be on Deep Space Nine as well. That's right. Yeah. Oh, come on. That, it, all the worlds are colliding right now you know, as we I, speak. I look at somebody like uh, Justin Mintelli plays Garrett, and this is his first job out of college. So he's surrounded by all, all, all these inbreds. Well, what I'm saying is, <laughs> I mean, how lucky is he? It doesn't seem like really anybody ever gets plucked out like that. He must have been super – well, he is super great. But, um, you know, I basically have to have worked with David E. Kelly or That's in Star Trek. Say, or or gone, gone to a dinner party at his house at yeah. least once. Yeah, it's true. The other thing we don't we don't see too much of, but I want to point her out is the opposing counsel, Larry C- or yeah, Larry Cedar's counsel, which is uh, her name is well, she's attorney Samantha Freed or Fried, and she's played by Erica Gimble Gimble. And okay, <laughs> in the very first scene we see her, she's actually using a cane. We don't see that. I don't. I don't remember seeing that in the settlement conference or at any other time. But there was a cane that she was um, using as she was, uh, you know, in court. Are you going to make your joke now? <laughs> I was trying not to, but but her last name, was it uh, Gimple? Yes. Gimple? Gimpy? Gimple? I know. It's terrible. Gimple. Oh, Rob. It's absolutely terrible for me to 
to joke about a handicapped person, right? Awful. Anyway, um, she, first line that she says is, <laughs> "How long all acting. How long have you worked at Devlin McGregor Pharmaceuticals, Mr. Clark? She's talking to Peter Clark, who's worked there for eight years as a lab technician. He's the one that basically is the whistleblower. In fact, he got fired for it. So I can see another case coming. <laughs> um, but let's just point out, as everybody probably has noticed by now, but I will say that I got an email from Robert Gallus from Oak Hill Neckwear. I don't know if that's a plug, of Braintree, Massachusetts. He wrote, uh, did anyone catch the reference to Devlin McGregor Pharmaceuticals? This was the name of the firm that made Provisic in the movie The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. They were behind Richard Kimball's wife's murder. Yes, indeed. It's a fictional company, but Devlin McGregor was used in the movie as the device. Basically, they they were going out and trying to, it caused this, this thing they had caused liver damage, and they're trying to suppress that information. You know, where does that come from? Is that just, just wild random? Well, I don't think so, because then another friend of mine, uh, Sue, just like more into six degrees than I am, realized that uh, the, this episode was directed by Lou Antonio. Lou actually was in three episodes of the TV series, The Fugitive. I don't think he wasn't in the movie. Now, I don't actually know if Devil and McGregor was mentioned in the TV series from the 60s we're only in the movie. Are we getting like too esoteric here? I think we're getting pretty deep here. <laughs> but don't you wonder, you know, I mean, of course, then again, the director did not write the script. So there's another connection with Lou a little bit later we'll get into. No, it's not six degrees under your your watch <laughs> here. It's like two degrees. Oh, Everybody's well. got a connection to everybody. Honestly, I need to get a family tree going on that website. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and I do want to mention, um, we were just talking about the actress who played the attorney for the opposing counsel, and you've probably seen her a million times on ER. She's the um, Adele Newman. She played. She's been there for like seven seven seasons. It's the social worker from Child Services, so she's always coming in there and trying to take the child out from the parents' hands and stuff. And actually, she was on the episode of House that aired on the same night as the Cancer Man. So she her basically. I don't know if she was like recording one, <laughs> the other, but she was on two shows on the same night on House and on Boston Legal. Shall I just do one more with that scene? She was cross-examining Peter, the, the guy that worked at Devlin McGregor Pharmaceuticals. Peter Clark, the actual actor's name is Art Chudabala, and he was in Star Trek Deep Space Nine and in Picket Fences. So once again, it proves the rule. You work for David E. Kelly once, you're set. <laughs> that or if you have some connection to Deep Space Nine, you're probably set too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, and the judge, the judge for this case Rose Oshheim is played by Mary Butcher. Butcher, I'm sorry if I'm saying this wrong. And uh, this is, she's was, of course, a judge. She's a judge in Boston, right? So she's been in an, an episode before. She was in The Truth Be Told in season one. So it's nice to see the same judges popping up, of course. That makes sense. Hey, Dana, is there any connection between uh, David E. Kelly and uh, Paramount Studios? That you're aware of? I don't, I don't know those kinds of connections. The industry connections, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I, I was just wondering because, you know, th- this whole Star Trek thing which seems to be coming mm. up over and over again, you know, with, uh, you know, William Shatner and, yeah. you know, Paul and all these characters all coming from Star Trek series. There must be some pipeline connection between Could it be someone named um, William Shatner? <laughs> Could be. No, Could I, be. I do know that, I mean, Scott Coffer, who was executive producer the first season, um, and wrote some scripts. He he left to go work at Paramount, but that's kind of a reverse situation. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, th- well, there's a little bit of a connection there then. I guess. Okay, this next clip I'm going to play, i got to set it up. The Really, one of the main reasons I want to play this next clip is it's a scene between Denise and Daniel Post, and he's invited her for a glass of wine at a restaurant in the lounge. 
to get a date. He wants a date. He's definitely coming on to her, and she's being all reticent because you know, a few months ago she she just went through a divorce, and and she's very professional, and frankly, the man is terminal. Plus, bitch, I think she has her radar up because you know he was a little unethical with the buying into the study. I don't think she approves of that mm-hmm. too much. But oh man, he wins her over, and how could he not? But she's an attorney. But the main reason, <laughs> yeah, well, what does that mean? <laughs> That means that there are th- ethical attorneys. No, well, I think that <laughs> they're a little easier to look the other way in ethical issues. Okay, right. Well, and maybe to some degree, we all should look beyond black and white and look at the shades of gray sometimes. Well, yeah. I mean, he just wants to live. You can't yes. blame him too much. So did the Larry Cedar character. Yeah, yeah. they just want to. Um, the reason I really liked this one is the way the clip starts. So you're just going to hear a few bars of the soundtrack for that scene, but in, if you're like a music freak as I am. You'll probably recognize it. I didn't actually know it until someone wrote in, uh, posted on the website. I have a music page, by the way, on the website. So if you ever want to know any songs that go, we're trying to fill that out to go in the, any of the, the episodes. It's Last to Know by Neil Finn. Anybody who knows Neil Finn, thank you, Cameron from Santa Barbara, for posting about this. He was in Split Ends with his brother, the band from the 80s. I think. Anyway. Yeah, I don't really remember. You don't well, remember? Okay. Oh, man. Sorry. I like split ends. Um, also in Crowded House. So you know that song, Don't Dream It's Over? No, I was trying to avoid <laughs> split ends back then. Okay. Anyway. Anyway, some of the lyrics that go with it, and it just it makes sense considering the storyline here. Feels like an accident waking up under a bus with my fingers crossed. Now is the time we could make it up. So stick around to the very end of the podcast. I think it'll be our theme music as we go out of the podcast. You'll hear a little bit more of it. Just and a sample. Just right. so RIAA doesn't get too mad at me. That's right. 20 seconds or less. Right? I don't know. That's, that's rule. <laughs> I'm sticking mine. <laughs> Given the evidence, a credible witness, and documented proof that you were administered the actual drug and not a placebo. Question. Go. When do you see yourself liking me? Um, Mr. Post, Daniel, um, plaintiff's attorney has been very effective in turning the jury against you. You come off as someone of privilege who has everything the jury wants but doesn't have. Except the girl. Bottom line, it's in your best interest to settle. How about we negotiate a settlement? I'm not following. I agree to settle the case if you agree to stop talking about it and and declare this an official date. (sighs) Have you ever done anything nice for anybody? Ever? See, you're trying to get a look under the hood. Not until you agree. Agreed. The answer is yes, but my mom taught me that it's impolite to brag about one's good works. Then don't brag. Tell. What's to say? Uh, um, my company sent thousands of pounds of supplies down to New Orleans before FEMA even put its pants on. I fund a charter school for learning disabled kids here in South Boston. I don't think the government does enough to help its people, so I give as much as I can. Do you know why I can do that? Because you're a rich guy. throws his weight around. goes hand in hand. Money gives me connections. Connections let me do what I want. Get what I want. You really don't care what anybody thinks to you. I got stage four lung cancer. I don't give a damn what anybody I don't know thinks about me. Life's too short. Really. What can you say? He has a compelling story. Michael J. here uh, seems to be a little bit kind of soft. Michael Jordan? No, no. 
Oh, Michael J. Fox. Soft of spoken. Okay. Very soft spoken, and, and really at times during this this dialogue, uh, he's so soft spoken that it's sometimes hard to understand him and hear him over the sounds of the uh, the bar mm. around him. Not that that's significant or anything, but it, just, it was just kind of interesting. That that was kind of the the whole tone of his his whole dialogue throughout the whole program, or was very soft spoken, which mm. I thought was interesting. I like that. He's not a bombastic Donald Trump type of tycoon. I guess not. And if you have problems, Rob, you can go to boston-legal.org and check out the transcripts because I'm a mess. It's typed up the whole thing. Has it? Yes, you can read along with it. You got the little dig at FEMA. Yes, I did. You know, New Orleans pops up again as a storyline. David Kelly, people love that. And then Michael J. Fox doing the little Boston accent when he said South Boston. Boston? I don't know. Is that how they say it? Actually, I've had more New York. I don't know. I don't know if but he actually had the Boston, the, the, the Boston drawl oh, on that one. I heard it. Really? Yeah. Uh, we have one more clip from that, and this is actually at the end of a, quote, so I call it a settlement conference. It didn't come of anything because Larry Cedar would not settle over the uh, what Daniel offers him because to him it's more important to steal time from him, take his time, because that's more valuable, mm-hmm. and he wants to hurt him, and, and that's sad. And this is actually all going to play out further on, but... It doesn't conclude with this episode because Michael's actually here for three and a little bit episodes. So we'll be seeing him a couple more, at least a couple more. But Paul, it's a foreshadowing with what Paul's coming up is in in a few weeks. We'll see his um, daughter, Rachel, come back into the picture. We'll see more. Paul has a storyline. And this is kind of alluding to the fact that Olivia, his wife, presumably died of cancer. So he has a word of warning after their conference and after Larry Cedar leaves the room Paul goes out after him. If I take your money, I won't be hurting you. The only thing that will really hurt you now is if I take your time. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. No, I won't. You have a wife. You have a family. You owe something to them, but you also owe something to yourself. I know this road. Do not allow anger to consume the last days of your life. Why is that? Why can't you have anger consume the last days of your life? Always a contrarian. I mean, logically, it seems like you you shouldn't let yourself do that, but... You know, if you have emotions, why not? You know, does it really matter? I guess well, a lot of people think about legacy, but you know, you're right. It doesn't really matter because it's your life. But you want to kind of think, you know, you always want to leave the party with people laughing. That's know? true. That's true. But I don't think it matters if you're dead. You don't really care what people think about exactly. you, I suppose. Yeah, say that. But it's always better to be positive, I suppose. It is. We embrace positivity. <laughs> the uh, To wrap up the story, there are no more sound bites on this, but... Um, Daniel Post does succeed in asking, well, not just asking Denise how he says uh, at another point, he says, I have a private chef that makes a mean breakfast in bed, you know, get my drift, you know, I think is what he's trying to I say. Think the, the key word in there is bed, I think. Yeah. yeah. And well, we don't see that yet, but we do see them go out on a nice evening and actually walking the streets of Boston, a device that Kelly uses a lot. And they have a kiss. Yeah. I think we saw that qu- quite a bit in... Um, Allie. Ally McBeal. No, always the the um, street walking scenes were pretty abundant in that show. I was always in that. Yeah, 
the funny line there was Daniel saying to Denise, I'm not looking for a long-term relationship. <laughs> Aw, poignantly funny. Yeah, uh-huh. Poignantly humorous. New storyline. Jerry hands Espenson. He's looking to make partner. In fact, as the uh, call went out, let me refer to my notes. The casting notes again from mid, <laughs> mid-October said... They're looking for David Kelly Productions, looking for Jerry Hans Wexler at the time. He was called Wexler. He's been changed to Espenson. Mid-30s, early 40s, a lawyer in the banking finance department. His sole focus is making partner. I didn't actually realize that was his sole focus, which might then explain why at the conclusion of this episode, he looks like he's leaving. So I, I thought, why would someone leave the employee of being, you know, of counsel when, you know, just because they don't make partner? I mean, okay, I don't get... You well, know, I think that there was some si- significant backstory on that storyline that uh, the audience probably didn't know about, you know, about this character and and the which really explains probably the the passionate defense that um the Alan Shore character portrays during this sequence as well. Okay. We're going to get to that fantastic Emmy winning <laughs> wonderful tour de force that Spader gives. Um but Let's see how they the episode begins with um, Jerry going in, walking into Alan's office, and and again, with that winning smile I love so much. Um, Alan, do you have a minute? What can I do for you, Jerry? They are meeting soon to vote on this year's partnerships. This will be my third time to be up for partner. My last time. I see. I was wondering if maybe you could tell me where I stand. You know the right people around here, and I know, well, no one. Jerry, you are an extraordinary attorney. I am. I constructed a chart that reveals my involvement is typically the key variable in the firm's winning a case. Bingo. It was my research that was the determining factor in the Simmons versus Arago oil victory, not to mention 252 other cases because of my research. Bingo. But still, I wonder whether the senior partners are aware of my contributions. Jerry... You know I have a tremendous affection for my own intelligence, and even I think you are smarter than me. Oh, I am. <laughs> I'll see what I can find out. That is darling. <laughs> oh, I am. <laughs> it's the parade of self-confidence on, on this uh, little dialogue sequence. I know. It's true. <laughs> the parade of self-confidence. Funny. <laughs> Uh, Christian Clemenson, another side note, we covered a lot of his six degrees, I think, in the Legal Deficits episode where he made his premiere. But he also appeared in two episodes of Family Ties with Michael J. Fox. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I owe that to my friend Anna. What would I do without my friends? They keep me totally... They know a lot, don't they? Oh, they do. Everybody's a total Googleite. Let's see what Shore does with that that promise. He um, actually goes... And addresses Shirley first. I don't know why, because he certainly knows his access to all things private come from other, pe- you know, from his best buddy, his sleeping partner. But he goes to Shirley, who, you know, says, ah. Denny, sh- right? I'm, yes, exactly. <laughs> Shirley turns him down. Now I'm not going to give you any information. I can't talk. It's not appropriate. That's right. So what does he do? Jerry Espenson? 
You mean Hans? Not a chance. He's a weirdo. Denny, he's not a weirdo, and he doesn't like to be called Hans. How could you not? Perhaps. A peccadillo, to be sure. We all have them. I don't have any peccadillo. What's your name, Denny? Denny Crane. Ah. Yes. My point is, Jerry Espenson deserves to be made a partner. What is that? Bev bought me a camera phone. The woman you enjoyed in the coat room? We can send each other pictures. This damn thing takes forever to load. Things going well with Bev, then? She said she wanted to fulfill every single one of my fantasies. I made a list. I had to type it myself. My assistant threatened to quit. Denny, you're glowing. She's an amazing woman, Alan. It's like having a one-night stand, but every night with the same woman. I'm thrilled for you, Denny. Now, about Jerry. He's not a rainmaker, Alan. Shirley says he's not bringing in enough money. He's toast. Weird toast. Would you at least let me have a glance at his performance review, then? Uh, it's highly confidential. Just don't tell anybody where you got it. Oh, picture's finally loaded. Look at this. She's very limber for a woman her age. Alan, I beg to be alone with my phone. Just uh, 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the big thing out, out of that scene for me, besides the 15 minutes alone with the phone, was the uh, the other piece with the phone, which is the connection with Star Trek. Oh, yeah. With the little communicator sound. I don't know if you guys caught that. Well, if they don't, you need to rewind your little iPods. <laughs> and, and listen, that's the exact same sound that the, that the little communicator that uh, was on Star Trek with Captain Kirk. Every time he opened it up, it had that mm-hmm. little kind of electronic sound. So, I mean, you know, this basically seals the deal. They are definitely inserting this this whole... F- oh, it's done totally on purpose. Yeah. yeah. Trek in the Quarium is not a little fiasco mind di- mind. F, you know, with my no, friend and I. There's definitely a connection between Boston Legal and the, the whole Star Trek yeah. genre. No question. Well, you know, and, and of course, we're all looking for why, what, what's going on. Well, actually, again, the director, Lou Antonio, guested as an actor on Star Trek, the original series, back in 1969. So, you know, maybe he just said, let's put that in there. But I, I don't know. I think that it's really Phil. He's sneaking those in in the editing process. <laughs> They're really catering to that Star Trek uh, audience out there it's not a bad audience to try and attract to this program oh no it's a definitely a brilliant business move yeah alias had its little number with the title and this different city thing they were you know people tracking a lost has all their clues and stuff i don't even follow it boston legal has its uh it's got its avid rabid star trek people yeah it's real similar to what's done in software it's called easter eggs easter eggs and that's dvds too Yeah, yeah sure all right a word about being weird toast, as Diddy refers to him, he's weird as toast or weird toast or something like that. Yeah, everybody's been talking about what what is it that he has? Is it kind of an um, you know what what kind of disorder or situation does Hands have? We think it's a it's a version or a variant of autism. Autism, of course, you all remember the Rain Man, hey Rainmaker, hey, that's a little interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but a variant is Asperger's syndrome. Asperger's syndrome. Look it up in Wikipedia. As as a short for AS. Uh, it's above average int- intellectual capacity, atypical or less well-developed social skills. And then they can't see the subtext of social interaction. So, you know, when Jerry was saying, well, when, when Shore said, you know, I have such great admiration for my own intelligence. And even you, I think, are smarter than me. So I am. You know, it just comes out. They don't do it to, like, build themselves up or be yeah. egocentric. It's just like the fact. It's very much dealing with the, the truth. 
It's really, I think it's real simple. It's interesting. There's no cure for that, but then there's this, it's a hotly debated issue, by the way. They don't want to cure AS in a sense because then you get into eugenics, which is that situation where you are pre-birth or you're somehow constructing a superhuman without any flaws. I don't mean it's a, it's not a disease, you know, do you want to come in, you know, say this person is going to be this kind of um, blonde, blue eyed, whatever, Brad Chase centric looking person, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, it's also a form of kind of compulsive behavior as well. So it's kind of kind of interesting when you cross-sect all those things together. Yeah. OC. What do you call it? OC? Yeah. OC, OCD? It's, yeah. it's the obsessive compulsive disorder, yeah. All right. Did I just not mention Brad? I can't go through a whole episode How? without a Brad yeah. moment. Yeah. How is that possible? <laughs> well, we're going to hear from him now. Another really nice scene because I think one of my pet peeves of this particular storyline is that it's, well, it's the whole series, what can I say, is they have a tendency to sort of put Brad, who's like the ethical guy, who's doing the right thing and actually generally seems to have, he's not too strict that he can't like have a caring sort of persona. He kind of comes across as being the, the shallow, you don't want to, not every guy has to be like this guy, Shore says later. And so he he's comes, not such a bad guy. In this episode, they try to make it sound like yeah. it's all looks and, and pandering to the partners over intelligence. Brad's intelligent. And look at this interaction we're about to play with you between Brad and, Han- and Jerry. Hey, Brad. Hey, Jerry. How's it going? Oh, I'm a little nervous about that partner thing. You? I can't say I'm not. Got any indication? Not really. Paul seems to think it looks good, but I certainly didn't help my chances. Lucid? He says it looks good for you? Well, he couldn't make any promises. Did you mention how it looks for me? No, we didn't really discuss you. Do you ever? I beg your pardon? Do people discuss me? Do they talk about me being odd because of my behavior jerry everyone here knows you to be a fine lawyer that's all i've ever heard discussed it's in my file that i'm violent because i pushed another lawyer once how do you know it's in your file i have a mole right here on my neck (laughs) (laughs) oh you're funny (laughs) like me to make a joke i hope it's in my file i'm funny he is that's a good social skill He's trying, right? That was adorable. How sweet was that? I have to have, I tell you, you have to go to the episode page on the boston-legal.org website and see the picture of him pointing to the mole on his neck with that sweet smile. I didn't see a mole on his neck, though. That well, was the no. thing. No, okay. Well, you know. <laughs> it was a joke. <laughs> All right. For our next clip, let me just set it up by saying they are now in the lecture room over at Cranepool and Schmidt with, uh, as as uh, Shirley pointed out, 50 of the top-tier partners. There's a lot of people in there. I mean, it was fascinating to scan that room and see faces I recognized. I finally saw the red-haired, red-headed lady that we've seen in, in many episodes, never speaking, but sitting at the conference room table. She's a partner. Wow. There's so, a lot of partners so, in that room that we don't know about. I don't know enough about firms, top-tier firms, but how does that work? I mean, you have three partners' names on the letterhead, one of which is in the loony bin, and you've got... 50 partners. Now, these are partners from all over the United States. The one person I saw from the international meeting, the very first episode of the first season, was Halpern. He's actually up there acting almost like an MC. He's the you know the African-American guy standing up there saying, okay, next we have Brad Chase. Everybody yeah. open your portfolios to that. They gave him the name Mark Halpern, even though in Head Cases, episode one, season one, he was Sam Halpern. And in, in fact, for three episodes in season one, in both head cases and crazy after all these years, and truth be told, he was Sam Halpern. But no, he's Mark. 
suddenly Halpern. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they have. Uh, you know, maybe they're they're twin brothers. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know about that. But I'm telling you, I'm a mess. Pointed that out. I'm a mess as my transcriptionist, dear woman in Canada, who. Um, Actually, has volunteered David E. Kelly. Just just make a note of this. If you want someone to like keep track of the names of your characters, she's volunteered because you know you, you kind of did this with, with Judge Cooper. You know he's Harvey Cooper this season. In the practice, he was Mal or Wallace Cooper. That's Anthony Held. And uh, you know we have Frank Ginsburg from the whole Gone Legal Deficits arc. He's the arch rival from from Harvard that Brad went up against in moot court. And also in his own defense. And coming up in a few episodes, we have another Ginsburg who's now a DA as opposed to an ADA, which Frank was. But this is a different actor playing him. But I mean, how many Ginsburgs are lawyers in Boston? I don't know. But <laughs> I Danny, you're just exposing all of David E. Kelly's little secrets. I love it. Not that I've tried to say, you know, you're bad, David E. Kelly. He knows what he's doing. I and mean, maybe he just does it to see if anybody pays attention. Oh, well, you are. <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> and thus, a lot of other people are paying attention because of you. Well, you know, forget about I'm a mess. Sorry, girl. You can hire me. <laughs> That's all I want, man. All right. So we're about to listen to um, <clears throat> exactly what happens in this, this meeting where they're going over and voting on partners. And now we turn our attention to our next candidate, Brad Chase. That's Halpern. Excuse me. Uh, sorry to interrupt. I have an urgent announcement to make regarding national security. I don't think our country is being run very well. That concludes the national security announcement. Now, on to other business, I'm looking at a group of partners in a world-class law firm, each of whom owes some of their success to Jerry Espenson. When any of you is stumped, and you need someone who has an encyclopedic knowledge of the law and the creative spark to know how to apply it. Whose door do you knock on? Mr. Shore, we appreciate your input, but you are not a partner. Yes, but that's only because I can't be trusted. I have here the confidential report on Jerry Espenson, known to some of you who should know better as Hans. Uh, this report, while acknowledging uh, that Jerry works very hard and has an astute legal mind, also makes some veiled references to inappropriate behavior. But really, this is about money, isn't it? And whether Jerry Espenson brings in enough. And don't we all just love our money? You people must realize that once the rainmakers have brought in the million-dollar accounts, those clients expect excellent representation for their money. And Jerry is a big part of what they're paying for. My God, why isn't being brilliant enough? Why can't a lawyer be a valuable asset to this firm without being a smiling Kendall with an aggressive handshake? Does everyone at the firm have to be this guy? Mr. Shore, you have no standing at this meeting. We would like to ask you to leave, please, now. Jerry Espenson has given 15 years of his life to this firm. His work has been essential. Now, no, I want to say one thing. Okay. Who, who do you call? Jerry? From the, from the Ghostbusters oh. series. Who do you call? You call Jerry, right? Yeah, I guess so. Rob's trying to make his cultural reference here. <laughs> you know, what you don't see is the priceless um, facial expressions at Denny gives you know he's sitting there on the front road between shirley and paul and at one point you know 
this is all about money. We love our money. And, and Denny agrees. Like he nods his, his head. head yeah, yes. Yeah. And then at some point, you know, he says, I have here a confidential file on, on his personal file of Jerry Espenson. Both Paul and Shirley look at Denny and Denny kind of shrugs his shoulders like, not me. <laughs> Who, me? <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. Oh, you know, I can't let this one more reference go by about <laughs> the fellow that plays um, Mark Halpern. And what was his name? Let's see. He was in an episode of I'm With Her. Do you guys remember that one? That was the Chris Hinchy wrote it. it was, he's the husband of Brooke Shields. He does the Entourage show now. Um, starred Terry Polo. Anyway, it was in the same episode, the Peck Peck, that Mark Valley was in. So they were both actually here. Halpern and Brad, you know, Mark, were in an episode together of another series. And, and now Halpern is pointing to this big poster of Brad up on the stage, you know, saying, let's, let's look at this guy's partner. It's cool. So to conclude that uh, dispute that was starting to boil up under Shirley, she, uh, at some point anyway, the the conference ended or they took a break and she was going ballistic on Alan Shore. Now, this is the part that I think you should submit to as an Emmy consideration. This is great. He's He does his speeches in the courtroom brilliantly. I mean, who could not love Death Be Not Proud? Well, it's, it's real similar but, to that. He, yeah. He, he kind of gives a real passionate plea for Jerry. So it's a segment I call Angry Alan. How dare you invade the province of a private partnership meeting? I'm sorry. I didn't think an invitation was forthcoming. There's a lot you don't know about the business of running a law practice, Alan. The first rule... It's a business. I understand that, Shirley. But it's a service business. You don't peddle widgets. You don't push stocks. You sell your people. And as far as your people go, I'll take Jerry Espenson over. Don't give... Well, you need to hear it. I said nothing when you fired Sally Heap, whose only infraction was to sleep with me. I made not a peep when you deftly ushered Lori Colson out of the firm. I even understood when you fired Catherine Piper, a woman I profoundly adore. I swallowed all of it because I know it's a business. But to abuse a talented, selfless employee only because his social skills lack polish. To allow him to work tirelessly under the delusion that he could make partner. A delusion you carefully nurtured so as to make piles of money off him in the short term. That's a betrayal, Shirley. Not just of Jerry, but of you and your character which up till now I have considered undeniably decent. Are you finished? No. <laughs> Jerry Espenson, no doubt, will go off quietly into the night, as the meek often do. But somebody around here has to get angry about it. Otherwise, he'll just go off and blithely do it again. We have not yet made a decision concerning Jerry Espenson. When we do, I will call you first to tell you it is none of your concern. There's a saying, Shirley. Perhaps you've heard it. All it takes for evil to succeed is for good people to say, it's a business. Wow, that was yeah. great. And and it wasn't even written by David E. Kelly. Again, Janet and Michael, the brilliant writers, wrote this brilliant monologue. They're showing him up, I think. That thing that he ended up with, um, all it takes for evil to succeed is for good people to say, it's our business. I, I personally immediately thought of, back. remember back on Witches of Mass Destruction, which I just realized that title has something to do with Witches of Eastwick, That's <laughs> which, is, which was something David E. Kelly's wife acted in. But anyway, I digress. Um, this is... Remember when Shirley got up and was defending the the right for witches and stuff to, you know, do do what it was about Halloween and the religious and connotations mm-hmm. in a school. Mm-hmm. And she brought up the German pastor Martin Niemöller and how he opposed the Nazis, silence breeds intolerance. And it was like it, it just rang the similar. So it's almost like he was Alan was throwing that back in her face, I thought. And, you know, she didn't she didn't like it. You know, she needed to hear it. And how wonderful was it to hear about Sally Heap, Lloyd Coulson? Well, and and the sad thing was, I, 
I don't think it really impacted Shirley at all. She didn't make any different choices or make any clue that I saw that she was giving any concession to any part of what Alan was saying. Yeah, that, that you're right. Later in the um, in the conference room party, it, or actually when she informed Jerry of how the vote came down, mm-hmm. it, you didn't see her soften. But you know she is she is affected by things. If you remember her Alzheimer's cross examination and stuff. Yeah, but, but she, she didn't seem to be affected by this. She didn't wear a heart on her sleeve, though. See, no. she it's going on inside. Yeah, but we think. Well, we think. Yeah, yeah. She's, you know, can I just say it? It said it in the episode <laughs> with that vagina and all. <laughs> she has to play with the big boys, and she can hold her own. And you yeah. gotta respect her for that, you know. But she I has mean, to be in this tough, case, I guess, in order to be a lead partner like that. Yeah. I mean, all, when all is said and done. And I loved, you know how I dedicated the whole show to Jerry's hands, <laughs> but a smile actually. But when it's all said and done, I don't know that he's the best face to to go to parties and bring in clients. To, I don't think a client would come into Cringe Pool and Schmidt after having a glass of wine with him. Well, and frankly, after seeing the um, the partner event and how many partners there was, they don't need another one. <laughs> Jerry could have just blended right in, and uh, nobody would have even probably noticed him. That's true. So anyway, that's the other side of the coin, too. I've said this before, but when did Catherine Piper become a woman that Alan Shore profoundly adored? I mean, definitely you can see that when he defended her for murder, but well, I think he, he hated her he, back in the practice. Well, no, I think he or something. genuinely respected her because she was different. I think she was unique. She, she was but she blackmailed person. him? She tattletailed know, but, on but, him? <laughs> but they had so much fun together doing that, uh, you know? I mean, I think they... I mean, he did wind up hiring her as as his secretary. Well, and the thing, the fact of the matter is, it's she's the only one that knows him from childhood. She knows what happened yeah. to his parents yeah. uh, in Dedham. We we they're gone for some reason. Yeah. We know the, the situation. Everything that she, she knows his secrets, and she's yeah. coming back. She's coming back. Oh, she's coming back. <laughs> oh yeah. man, I cannot wait. And by the way, happy birthday to Betty White. Well, you can't keep Betty White off of that show. She's just such a card. Oh. Love her. Priceless little scene. This is after the voting has taken place, and, the, and they're starting to tell the people if they have or haven't made partner. And Brad is um, looking a little stoically bracing himself to hear the news from Paul in Paul's office. Brad, it was a very close vote, but you made it. You are now officially a full partner at Crane, Pool and Schmidt. Congratulations. Thank you, Paul. I will not let you down. Brad, on your knees. What? Danny, must we do this every single time? My name on the door, the answer would be yes. On your knees. Brad Chase. I hereby dub thee Brad Chase. Welcome, partner. Thank you. My lord. Ah, <laughs> that was all visual there. Sorry, guys, you, yeah. you, didn't, you missed it. <laughs> oh man, Brad, Brad was beside himself. He was like, "Going, you've got to be kidding." What? No, he was, but wasn't he gracious? I mean, he humors Denny. He loves Denny. Denny's dad for him. But yeah, he he was knighted with the sword. Denny and his arsenal, <laughs> guns and swords and ammo. Well, you had to kind of think for a second there when, when Denny said, uh, Brad, on your knees. I know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, 
Denny's a dog in this movie. You just have to. I mean, or this show. He's just. You just have to. Just you just jump to conclusions when you hear something like that out of his mouth. He's already sleeping with one. You know. <laughs> The associate there, and you know, what can Paul you goes. Say? Do you have to? There's a whole boys club that we just don't understand. <laughs> all right, Brett's all man. Of course, that doesn't preclude what you were suggesting. <laughs> I wasn't suggesting anything. I was just saying that you know, you just kind of it's a leading question or a statement. We're coming to a head, the head if, <laughs> expression of the uh, the the climax of the of the story arc. Um, turning red let me have a sip of water um and this is when shirley actually also invites jerry into her office and and invites him to stay of counsel but informs him that no partnership will be extended to him ever again and i thought that was kind of odd that she says well you're invited to stay almost like we assume and maybe we want you to go well i think that scene i think reflected a little bit of what the Alan Shore character portrayed (laughs) was that uh that that she needed to be clear with him and not mislead him about his future at the at ah, the firm. there you go well that that may be true 15 years offer he was up for three times but so we see a picture we see this brilliantly cut scene i mean a sequence where hans is packing his things in his boxes um he's where's my mug and it's intercut between that again phil neal editor um which he did the same in hired guns with between uh, you know cutting the hostage situation where alan's being held hostage this last season and then brad's closing um on the susan may trial for she's on trial for killing her husband but in this one it's between hands packing up to go and just about losing it you know this is not enough it's not enough is it enough and a little party that's going on for brad in the conference room so complete stress and and depression with a lot of gleeful happy enthusiasm and congratulations with cake surprise (laughs) oh no (laughs) look at that Enough is not enough. It's not enough. My initials on the briefcase. Nice touch. Jerry. Why don't you come on in? Have a piece of cake. Yeah, I'll get it for you. Yeah, I can do it. Okay. <laughs> How's that, Shirley? Is that enough? How about that? Is that enough? Is that? Look, hands. I mean, Jerry. <laughs> Everybody stand back. I'll kill her. I swear I will kill her. I want to be made partner. I'm going to draw up an agreement, and you're going to sign it, Shirley. We'll include a hold harmless clause for this assault. But this is a crime. Hold harmless clauses are for insurance and real estate, not for crime. Don't say crime. We're just talking here. It certainly won't cover attempted murder. Don't say murder. You, substandard first year. Go pull the criminal law treatise at 22 ALR 3rd 1228. Reference cases that hold extreme emotional conditions diminish one's responsibility for a crime. You! What do you think you're doing? Going to get one of your guns? No. Why would I do that? The one day I don't wear my sock holster. You, substandard partner. Get me Rosenberg versus Kaplan. 
273 MAPS 411. The facts of that case can be construed to uphold an employment contract even though it's entered into under duress. Yo! Hot secretary, that makes me nervous. Get me a copy of the firm's partnership agreement and prepare to make some changes. Jerry, this is never going to work. Pipe down. Don't stand. Go. Get my guns. I'm calling the police. Which gun should I get? No guns. Just look at the damn cases. Subsection 1, upon his or her motion, a named partner may unilaterally reconsider the rejection of a senior associate for partnership. Did you get all that? Yes, Jerry. Please type it up. Clackety-clack. What's going on? Hands went nuts. people i said hands see i can be just as funny as you jokesters why are you all laughing don't do this jerry please stop now before this gets too out of hand control i will help you like you did with the partnership you don't want to throw away an entire life's worth of work over one emotional outburst I don't want to see the most gifted legal mind I have ever encountered rotting in a prison cell. I put down the knife, Jerry. On one condition. You represent me once I'm arrested. That's a conflict of interest. I don't care. You know the firm can waive that conflict, and I know that you'll honor that waiver because if nothing else, you're a man of your word. Make the deal. I'll represent you. Now hand me the knife. This is the cake I want for my birthday. Denny's, you like it. <laughs> Nothing's going on other than what he likes. You know, it's all about Denny. Wow, that was that was quite a it was a long sound bite, but you know you just can't cut up anything like that. That you have to play that full one out. And one of the things that was really kind of interesting about that whole sequence was the the use of music in the background to to play up the uh, mm. the, the intensity of the scene. It was like when. When the knife finally got handed to Alan, um, you know, we, we had the music just kind of, just kind of like crash. It was like, it was almost like a release of tension. And you really notice that when you're only listening to an episode and not watching it. Yeah, exactly. It's like the, the music's there, but you don't really actually feel it, you know, consciously. I think next week we'll have to dedicate it to Danny Lux. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he does a good job. We uh, just to conclude this storyline, we see Jerry being led out by the police, which Brad called. Someone's brought up to me. Why is Brad missing during these hostage situations? He's the one hostage negotiator, member in the Marines. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> he, he went off, but you know he's contacting authorities, so that's his reason. 
It was settled peacefully. He's being the good partner. Alan was dressed in his overcoat, carrying his briefcase. He was on his way out. He was not going to celebrate with (laughs) With Brad. (laughs) Brad, Not at all. Finally, we come to the storyline that promises to be a very intriguing one, a life-changing one for the next few episodes. And that would be Denny finding his bliss with Bev. And the episode, the whole episode starts out with um, the group at a function, a social function, the children's group, Robert Christopher Sutton Award for Community Excellence. And you know I googled Robert Christopher Sutton Award in Boston. <laughs> I was looking to see if it was real, but nothing. Uh, so the MC at the charity event is basically introducing Denny, who has gone AWOL. Because, you know, he didn't know what he was there for. He kind of knew, but, you know, he was actually just being really frustrated and, and wanted to get up and walk around. And he he stumbled across someone at the bar. And just prior to him being introduced to do a, a keynote presentation to the whole event. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And people were getting a little nervous. And it was all about him. The whole thing was about him. <laughs> it and was. he takes off to go to the bar. And. <laughs> and he actually meets this woman, Beverly, and they have a little rendezvous in the coat room, which is shown via their feet struggling beneath some coats. I don't know where the coat check girl went. Oh, neither. And I don't quite know how Denny, at his age, is like lifting Bev up, but her feet kept being lifted up. And there was a lot of noises, and I think I heard Denny saying, Denny Crane, or something <laughs> like that. And, uh, and just as the MC is saying, you know, and now we present... Denny Crane and everybody's nervous. And by the way, the MC at the charity event was in the practice police state. He was one of the officers that came rushing in when Alan first hid a murder weapon. The, the first really illicit thing that he did in the practice. So um, it all concludes well. He shows up in time. And as they're all leaving the function and getting out, getting their coats back, and Shirley is actually about ready to receive her coat from the coat check girl. This conversation transpires. And what did you think of my speech? Excellent. Thank you for writing it for me. Give me a call sometime. You know how to use a business card, don't you? You just whip it out of your pocket and... Blow. You look puzzled. I am. The woman I just have sex with hands me her card and I have no desire to throw it away. You had sex with her here? Hot, sweaty sex right there. In the coat check room. <laughs> keep it. That's the Candace. That's Shirley saying, keep it. Keep my coat. I don't want my coat anymore. <laughs> because it was in the coat room with the hot, sweaty sex that, Danny, right. that Denny just had. Yeah. As reported back early October, October 12. Again, remember, they were filming this episode in October. Someone had reported to me that they saw that James Spader, they saw James Spader at the Millennium Biltmore Hotel. Actually, they saw the whole crystal ballroom. Um, and they were filming, I guess, either there or in the Tiffany room done up for this event. So they were, they were filming this back on October 12 ish. And, you know, she saw the um, big posters of Denny up on the wall and stuff at the millennium Biltmore was actually as vanilla. My friend told me, uh, the, where they filmed the prom scene, pretty in pink, which starred James Spader and others. Also six days later from that filming date, William Shatner had to be rushed to the hospital with his kidney stone. No relation, just putting it in context, that's all. So he probably had to give birth to his kidney stone, which is what... <laughs> didn't it show up later in the show or something? It's no, 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 but he's been on the rounds of the... <laughs> yeah. He was on Kimmel saying he'd like to auction it on that's eBay. That's right, that's <laughs> I think right. That eBay the I remember hearing about him trying yeah. to get rid of his kidney. Yeah. Oh, and then we heard from Joanna Cassidy, who she's here playing Bev, 
And uh, she was actually in the Hollywood Wives miniseries back in the mid-'80s, 85, with Candace Bergen. They were both in there together. So they're they, – of course, she's more, more well-known on Six Feet Under. You remember Six Feet Under. Yeah. We were well, – we and love also, that show. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also L.A. Law, too. I remember that. Yeah, she was a judge in L.A. Law. Wow. Yep. Very good, Rob. Uh, so they pick up, definitely, Bev and Denny, as we heard earlier with the cell phone and the limber Beverly – and it doesn't doesn't just happen via the cell phone. It happens in the firm as well as Shirley is horribly aware. Shirley, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you knock. Gee, I, I wonder why that could be. Maybe because you were too busy having sex on your desk. How did you know? I had the door closed. But ah, the blind was open. to draw all the blinds. <laughs> Oversight. We were both facing the same way. I'm all too horribly aware of which way you were facing. Oh, goodness me. I'm so rude. I'm Beverly Bridge. Shirley Schmidt. Did you finish the notes on the partnership candidates? I've been busy. The vote's tomorrow. Fifty of the most senior partners will be there. Fifty? This is unprofessional, Denny. Yes. You are setting a very bad example for the rest of the firm. Understood. And from now on in this office, those blinds go down before anybody else does. Okay. Oh, jeez. Of course, that makes those me think bad of... bad or worse. That makes me think of the line later when Brad, you know, get on your knees, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So, and then as she shuts the door, Beverly kind of makes this, uh, you know, she's, he says, she's jealous. And Beverly, you know, says, poor thing, and kind of comes over like she's ready for more. And, and Denny gets this priceless look on his face, like, oh, great. She's um, coming back for more. Joanna yeah. Cassidy also starred with Spader a long time ago, a series that aired for like three episodes or like, no, one month called The Family Tree back in 83. So they were actually in a show together, TV show. Oh, and I just have to say this. It's a little out of context, but Beverly Bridge and, and Brad get together soon. And actually Brad represents her in a sort of a custody battle. And it's a very unusual one involving something or her former husband has possession of that she wants that is theirs together that is a living thing okay that's all i'm gonna say so this relationship with with denny um continues yes oh yes it it has a definite peak coming up in a few weeks if you want any of those spoilers go to my episodes page i've got details stuff that isn't even out there yet uh finally want to end with this (laughs) wonderful dinner conversation that denny and bev are having where um I don't know. I think it moves the relationship ahead a little bit. As godlike as I seem to you and other people, there's a there's a, a mortal inside this godlike shell. I don't trust myself. Bottom line, I'm not a one woman man. You know, Denny, we're both much too old for this and too smart. We are? Is there a powerful man out there who hasn't felt what you're feeling? No. So why fight it? And people don't change their stripes, and you don't want me to change you. And I certainly don't want you to change me. Therefore, Denny Crane, as long as we're together, feel free to have sex with anyone else you want. Love 
That should be a big red flag <laughs> that she's not out for a long-term relationship here. All the same, she is so beautiful, and I love that little <laughs> laugh at the end. And, and who I'm now calling Emo Denny, because Denny is showing his emotions. I love you, he said. Well, I can't wait to see how this one progresses. Yeah, or how it crashes on Denny. Yeah. In a few minutes, we'll hear the previews for next week, and you'll see a little bit more of Beverly or how she, uh, well, I think your point will be proven by then. Yeah, because I don't think Denny's thinking with his brain right now. I think he's thinking with another part of his anatomy. <laughs> you know how guys are. They get that way. I do. Yeah. Rob, take a walk with me out onto the balcony. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You got to end the show with the balcony scene and every week. For a highly amusing and moving episode, I think one of the funniest Denny lines ever in this soundbite on the balcony as they recap the day, Alan and Denny. By the way, uh, did I tell you? Bev and I are getting married. No. I would have remembered that. Yeah, well. She's the one. Yes. She seems like the one. Congratulations, Denny. I want to assure you that my impending nuptials won't change anything between us. No impact whatsoever. I gotta go. We're registering for flatware. Just did impact it, didn't it? Just then? Right after he said the words? (laughs) Then he goes from buying her a gift (laughs) himself... To now registering for flatware. She's domesticated him. <laughs> well, he's been whipped. No question about that. Nah. I think he's going to be used. Well, to... remember, he's he's now have, getting to still have sex with anybody he wants. But I bet he won't. Well, I don't know. You know. I don't know. He may be pretty whipped. There's a waitress at his wedding. We'll see. He's been pretty desperate to get to her. And, of course, the final uh, vision of him walking away down the hallway, leaving Alan alone, I think had a few people... Very, very worried about Alan being alone. I don't think he'll be alone for long. And, and Alan already is highly involved with someone himself. <laughs> oh, most definitely. Yeah, and I get a sense that he's getting more attached to his secretary all the time. Oh, please keep Melissa on the show. I adore her. Yeah. I think I like her uh, probably more than any of the females on the show, including Candace Bergen, I think. Yeah. I, I love her. She's yeah. great. All right. Well, unfortunately, without Kyle here, we do not have the the um, the privilege of hearing his good, bad, and the ugly. I hope he'll still write one, and we can post it. Get on the stick, Kyle. It's so hard filling Kyle's shoes. Hmm. We do have a previews for the next episode. I would like, in fact, we have two of them. Uh, this is for the episode well, number twelve called "Helping Hands." First, the one that played right after the episode ended. Next on Boston Legal. Mr. Espenson threatened to kill his boss in her place of business. Do not start defending him to me, Alan. I agreed to defend him. That's why he put down the knife. By the way, I'm, uh, I'm dying. I object. He's trying to garner sympathy. I start chemo again tomorrow. Denny got engaged. Mazel tov? No mazel tov. So you think I'm screwing Denny for his money and power? Well, good news. I am. Bev is the woman I've always dreamed of. An angel in the bedroom, a horror in the kitchen. I think it's the other way around. Not last night. 
<laughs> so as you can probably pick up, uh, Denny is, of course, proceeding with his relationship with Bev, wants Alan's approval. Uh, Denise is on hand, which we didn't touch on, to represent uh, Tracy. She's accusing her parents, George and Gigi Goering, of harassment. And, of course, Alan will defend Jerry against attempted murder. This is not aggravated assault. We're not talking about the felony that Brad got when he actually chopped off fingers. Jerry did say, I will, I will kill her in front of a room full of witnesses, lawyers. So I guess, I guess attempted murder might be the charge. Yeah, it certainly could have been. This next preview I'm going to play is the one that, that ABC is playing during the week. And uh, my friend Sue pointed out the background music, which is – remember how – Totally, I was salivating over the background music in the date scene earlier. And this one, Warren Zevon, she she identified it for me. Keep me in your heart. Now, Rob, do you remember anything about Warren Zevon who passed away just recently? No, I don't. You, but that's okay. You, you know him, Werewolves of London. You know, yeah, very okay. good social commentator. Sure. He died of lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And that was actually documented. I mean, in fact, I think there's a docu documentary film that's goes by the same name as this song that's playing underneath. But how apropos. He's singing that, Keep Me In Your Heart. He died of lung cancer. Daniel Post is dying of lung cancer. Let's listen to it. I hope they use this in the episode. Tuesday. I'm a client. I'm Bernard. I'd like to try a case with Miss Bauer over here. Why not? An unforgettable actor. By the way, Your Honor, I'm, uh, I'm dying. I object. You object. An unforgettable role. You are really going to try a lot. You should, um, maybe next time. If I leave you, it doesn't mean I love you any less. Michael J. Fox returns for an all-new Boston Legal, Tuesday, 10, 9 Central, following a new Commander-in-Chief, only on EBC. Mm. In fact, I've posted a link to the music video with Warren Zevon singing. That's very touching. I've been playing it all day. Rob, we've come to the part of our podcast where we bring in Deb from Montreal. Sometimes she calls in, sometimes I just read her work, but uh, we're looking at Trek in the Courtroom. Parallels. We did touch on one. What was that, Rob? That was the cell phone that Denny had. Yeah, and it sounded like? Like a communicator from Star Trek. All right. It had that little electronic sound when it flicked open. All right. Well, hang on there. I've got Deb on the phone. Deb, thanks so much for calling in all the way from Canada. Happy New Year, Dana. You know, I think we dubbed you last time you were on our forensic television anthropologist of comparative studies of Trek and Boston Legal. Do you like that? I'm honored. I know. It's very, very elaborate title. Did you go to college for that? Uh, partly. Okay. Well, without further ado, we're talking about the Cancer Man Can episode, which is episode 11 of season two of Boston Legal. And you watched it and found some comparisons that were similar to all kinds of Star Trek and other kind of movies that, that were out there, right? Well, you know, I thought, I thought that, uh, that the most uh, non-subtle one was actually the one that was a soundbite, and it was at the chirp of the communicator. William Shatner, as uh, Danny Crane, opens up his cell phone, which was given to him by his girlfriend, Bev. Let's listen. What is that? Bev bought me a camera phone. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You hear it when you, you know, after the little ringtone, when he actually opens it, you hear it. And it flips open kind of like those, those little, what did you call them again in Star Trek? Communicators. Communicators. Okay. How can I forget that? <laughs> That's really great. Now that one actually, you're right, was not as subtle. It may have been not so subtle, but 
it was intentional and it's sort of like a validation that yes, you know, um, there are little tucked in Star Trek references and we're not imagining them. <laughs> oh, they're enjoying this, aren't they? <laughs> Let's go to more of the subtle ones. You did notice uh, something interesting about the other guest star you just referred to, Joanna Cassidy. Why don't you explain the similarities there with Star Trek Boston Legal? She resembles greatly a character uh, that was in the TNG episode uh, and, um, Kate McFadden played Dr. Beverly Crusher. Right, she and does. Very similar, and, and, and the name is similar, and I find... Oh, uh, Beverly Bridge, Beverly Crusher. Oh, that's true. Right, and, and they're, both, they're both Bevs. But what is uh, also striking is not only were their you know, names similar, but they look alike. They do, they and have they're the... they're both, you know... Same age. Tall blondes of a certain age. <laughs> of a certain age. In fact, uh, I do want to point out you, you rounded up pictures of both of them side by side. So if anybody wants to go to boston-legal.org, click on the Trek link. You'll be able to bring up the page of the show notes about this comparative studies <laughs> and see the pictures of everything we're talking about, right? I think one day we should add a little box. Is this really a Trek resemblance? Yes, no, and see what people think. <laughs> No, I just want to believe what I believe. <laughs> I just want to believe what I want to believe. Too. Also, there was another interesting comparison with um, Joanna Cassidy, right? Yeah, Joanna Cassidy also appeared. Uh, she's Star Trek alumni. Who isn't? <laughs> it seems that way. Joanna Cassidy portrayed uh, the character Teles in Enterprise, the last Star Trek series to run, and that was um, the mother of. Oh my gosh, I can't even remember her name, the Vulcan chick. <laughs> okay, the Vulcan chick. That was her mother. <laughs> T'Pol. Her name was T'Pol. Okay. She and was the main character on the ship, part of the ensemble, cla- uh, part of the ensemble class. Uh, she was the one with the short hair, right? Yeah, the, really the pointy pixie, ears. The pointy ears. In fact, you have a picture as well. You've supplied that from... Yeah, that will Joanne be on Cassidy website. appears as Teles, and she um, doesn't look at all herself in it. I would have never known that was Joanne Cassidy. Yeah, I'm looking at the picture right now, and you're you're right. It's a different hair color, different everything. Everything. I mean, you know, plus the pointy ears. All right, now we have the other guest star from the series, uh, from this episode, which was Michael J. Fox. And uh, I I think you'd have to be pretty much just born the last few years to not realize the connections here. But let's go over them anyway. That's what we call separation by six degrees connection. Michael J. Fox is uh, friends with Dr. Emmett Brown. Dr. Emmett Brown, portrayed by Christopher Lloyd, who also played Crooge, uh, a nemesis to Kirk in Star Trek Three. Now, we didn't reference the movie. What, where were they friends in? They were, they were from Back to the Future. Back to the Future, of course. <laughs> Back to the Future has uh, two Star Trek references uh, where they mention the planet Vulcan. And they, one of them was uh, by... Uh, Marty McFly when he scares his future dad into asking his future mom out on a date. Yeah, set up that scene a little bit, and then we'll play the soundbite you found. So, Mar- so Marty, Marty is um, dressed up in a uh, a suit for radiation protection, I guess, a radiation protection suit, head to toe. It has a black mask, and he looks like an alien. He's got a uh, hair dryer tucked into his belt, which might look <laughs> like some sort of futuristic gun. <laughs> Gun, and he's got his uh, Walkman in his hand, which I think is loaded with ACDC, which is what makes a horrendous sound. 
Well, and, and you know, that's he, the, the he, 50s. He tells his father that he is Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan. Silence, Earthling! My name is Darth Vader. I am an extraterrestrial from the planet Vulcan. <laughs> Darth Vader, ACDC, those are all like... 30 years in the future from the time Back to the Future was, you know, said. Right. And then, of course, you know, his father, uh, who is played by uh, Christopher Glover, mm-hmm. you know, is uh, frightened into asking Marty McFly's future mother, Lorraine, uh, out to, to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. And I think there's a sound clip where, you know, uh, father uh, McFly tells the son McFly uh, about his, uh, encounter the night before with Marty as an alien. <laughs> what made you change your mind, George? Last night, Darth Vader came down from Planet Vulcan and told me that if I didn't take Lorraine out, that he'd melt my brain. Yeah, well, uh, let's let's just keep this brain melting stuff to ourselves, okay? Six degrees of separation yeah. between Boston Legal and Trek. Well, to sort of cement the whole Star Trek and Marty McFly scenario, didn't he flash a symbol? Yes, he actually, I, I wish I had a picture of it, but he, he does give the Vulcan salute uh, to his uh, future dad uh, <laughs> when he uh, is in the bedroom trying to scare him into asking uh, or telling him to, to ask Lorena on a date. Sadly, I don't, I don't know, but I don't think there were any Michael J. Fox, William Shatner scenes together were there in Boston Legal Cancer Band can. Um. I don't believe so. Not to say it won't be in the next, in the next few episodes as the arc continues. And just like you said, I mean, you did allude to it. I just have to point it out that, that Christopher Lloyd, who played in Back to the Future, Dr. Emmett Brown, was, did end up killing Captain Kirk's son in, in a search for Spock. And you mentioned that, but I just want to verify oh, that is yes. a wild. Captain Commander Kirk. This is a five-minute segment. <laughs> <laughs> and we covered that. I know. No, we mentioned it, but I, I don't know if we went through it carefully. I just wanted to call it out. There is one more similarity that you did pick up that had to do with Commander Data from Next Generation. Yeah. The uh, the, the last scene in The Cancer Man Can involved uh, devouring a cake. And uh, this, uh, um, this scene also is, you know, the source of um, hands, uh, frustration and anger coming out, and he attacks Schmidt. Yes. In a similar episode, uh, in t- in the um, the Next Generation, Data, help me out, Dana. I forget the name of the episode. Uh, Phantasms. In an episode called Phantasms, Data is uh, haunted by some nightmares, and uh, for no explicable reason, he dreams about a cake. Uh, in the shape of Deanna Troy. And, you know, that's a cellular peptide cake. And he devours uh, his anger, his frustration that, 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 that evolving from the nightmares cause him to devour the cake as well. I.e. Deanna Troy. Yeah. Deanna Troy uh, with a uh, sharp tool that looks like some sort of fancy serving knife. <laughs> knife. Very similar, very interesting. And you do have a picture of that. So definitely, everyone, go to the website, click on the Trek link, launch that uh, PDF, and you can see all these things we just talked about. Thank you so much, Deb. That was wonderful. Thank you for calling in all the way from Montreal. I always enjoy discussing it with you, Dana. Let's look at some of the news that happened related to Boston Legal in the last, I don't know, month, I guess, since it's been <laughs> since we've had a new episode. Uh, some calendar events coming up. 
Perhaps this will have passed by the time you're listening to this podcast, but on January 17th, Betty White's birthday, she plays Catherine Piper. What a trooper. And um, James Spader's birthday is coming up February 7th. That's always good. So we wish you well, guys. And don't look for an episode on January 31st because, well, you know, that guy, Bush, mm-hmm. he's going to take over the airwaves. It's that State of the Union thing we do every year. Unfortunately, it's on Tuesday night. <laughs> I think Alan Shore did tell us what the State of the Union was when he, he gave his national security alert in the partners meeting. Boston Legal Awards Watch. We've got a new little uh, section right there on the front page of the website. Um, we're going to keep track because there's a ton of awards, not only just the Golden Globe, which we now know the result of. Um, but January 22, the produce, they'll have the Producers Guild of America Awards and Boston Legal's up as far as producers being um, nominated as David E. Kelly, Bill D'Elia, Mike Listo, Steve Rob- Robin, Janet Knudsen for episodic television. Um, David E. Kelly won this a few years back as well. On the 29th, ah, oh, the SAG Awards, Screen Actors Guild. William Shatner's up for that, James Spader and Candace Bergen, all for outstanding performances. But the one I love the most, the entire cast for outstanding performance in an ensemble and a comedy. Of course, comedy is the key word here, not drama. Um, and that means we'll be seeing the whole cast going in there and celebrating. I'm very excited. That thing will be broadcast on TBN. Comedy. That's interesting. I know. Well, you know, remember they announced at the at the uh, TCA Awards and the TCA press event tour that mm-hmm. they were going to go for more comedy. And I think this is part of it. Plus, I mean, there's all kinds of talk. There's an article actually on the website discussing the pros and cons of being submitted as comedy and Maybe the competition is better because it's an hour versus little sitcoms that are half hours. I mean, maybe yeah. competition is easier, I should say. But I've never really thought of the show as a comedy. <laughs> well. I mean, I guess it has its parts. It's it's that new category. It's the dramedy com- category. And I think they're Dramedy? Talking, dramedy. Yeah. That is a new category. Not like the camel dramedary <laughs> or whatever it's called. But anyway, um, no, the, there's potential. There's buzz about a new category for that because. Dramedy. You know, like Desperate Housewives, yeah. Grey's Anatomy, they're comedy drama type things. Um, also, congrats go to Phil Neal. We mentioned this, the Ace Eddie Awards. That's on February 19. Let's see if he wins. He won last year. I have no doubt he will win this year. And congratulations again also to Carrie Washington. She's nominated for NAACP Image Awards uh, for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series. So here it's drama. Remember, she was in several episodes of last season. And... Uh, you know, she's, of course, well known for her role in Ray, the movie. So that's on February 25. We'll let you know as these things happen, as these things are. We'll let you know as they win. Yeah, or mm-hmm. not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just have to say really quickly, I won't spend any more time on this, but um, check out the episode page. We've got, I think I'm the first person to post any information about a ser- uh, the March 7, at least I think it's going to be March 7 episode. It's going to be episode 18 called Shock and Ow, not Shock and Awe. And uh, it's a scoop. I won't give away spoilers as I'm talking, but um, it, it's going to be wonderful. So read the little, you know, three or four sentence summary I wrote up after taking a look at the script. Um, and all, of course, all the site updates you'll see, you just have to go and check them out every day because something new is going up every day. That brings us to the conclusion of the show. A rather lengthy one. I couldn't help yes. it. It was so well, much fun. Well, it's been so long since you've done one. Well, so yeah. you a lot of, to catch up on. Boy, you're glad you got the edited version, man. I mean, in person, if you wanted to talk Boston Legal, 
let's talk because I could talk for much longer about the show. <laughs> yeah. A three-hour podcast? Thing is, I don't. I am. I hate email, and I don't do telephones. So I don't know. You just have to travel up here to Washington State. And talk I guess to me. so. <laughs> well, definitely, everybody, remember to watch Helping Hands on January seventeenth, Boston Legal Tuesdays. Uh, thanks to Rob for being here and pitching for Kyle. It's fun, as always. <laughs> it is fun. You've really added a lot to it. Remind everybody how they can contact us if they want to. You can send Dana an email at uh, bostonillegal at gmail.com. And, or you can actually call her and leave a voicemail message. And uh, I think she'll actually play it on the show, maybe, possibly. But it's 1-800-986-8290. And uh, don't be shy. Give us a call. Didn't I just say hate email and don't do telephones? I know you did. But, I don't like but, to communicate to anyone. <laughs> but that's okay. We, we oh. can hear from some of your fans. I'll read it and I'll listen to it. I yeah. just don't know if I can return the calls. <laughs> well, until next time, remember, Rob. We look good, right? Huh. Yeah, we look great. I went down the track, made the wrong turn, finished up where I started. Really don't care what anybody thinks to you. I got stage four lung cancer. I don't give a damn what anybody I don't know thinks about me. Life's too short. How does it feel beneath your own wheel? Feel like an accident waking up under a bus with my fingers crossed. There's a saying, surely. Perhaps you've heard it. All it takes for evil to succeed is for good people to say, it's a business. Now is the time. 